Well, we have the joy together in our study of John's gospel to enter into chapter 20, the resurrection of the Lord on this day that we do remember the empty tomb. So join me in John chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, if you don't have one, there should be one in the chairs in front of you. John 20, beginning in verse 1, I will read down through verse 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And they had these things, or that he had said these things to her. Our Father in heaven, we take a few moments now opening up your word together and looking at the testimony of your son's sacrifice on the cross and a tomb that is now empty. And it's our hope that as we look together at your word, your spirit will move in our hearts to give us understanding. And Father, that you will lead us in a place that truly worships you as you deserve, not only in our hearts as we as we ponder the glory of this empty tomb, but as we recognize what it means for us who believe from this day forward and into eternal life. We are so thankful that we have a God that not only has created us, but has breathed new life into us by faith in Christ, granting us salvation and giving us an eternal hope. We're thankful this morning that we have a God that has this redemptive love that has been gracious to us, And poured out his mercy on us, knowing that laden with our sins and being slavery to unrighteousness, you by faith have set us free. And we are grateful for that gospel of Jesus Christ that has brought us this freedom. Help us now as we worship you before your written word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as Tim opened our service this morning, insignificance, the empty tomb, ranks right up there with the cross itself. And as Paul instructs in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain, our faith is worthless, and we are still in our sins. And as critical as the cross is to our faith, we understand if there were no empty tomb, the death of Christ would be meaningless. And as we've observed so many times before in our study of John's gospel, he covers certain details that the other gospel writers have not included. 
And in addition, he leaves out certain things that he feels have already been well covered by the other gospel writers. The resurrection account is found in all four gospels. And each of the four authors have their own approach in dealing with this magnificent event. And as we read the four gospels, like here in John, you can sense, you can almost feel the surprise that turns to excitement as the, the story unfolds, moving from discovering the empty tomb to finally the appearance of the living Savior. In our study of this special day this morning, since this is our Resurrection Sunday celebration, we will attempt to, make, to look at the actual presentation of the resurrected Jesus in its whole, which means I'm going to be covering a few more verses than I would normally because we want to take in the whole scene where Christ is actually seen alive. So that's why we're going to be looking at the first 18 verses of chapter 20 where I would be prone in other sermons to look at only a couple of verses. It's important that we capture this perspective or this larger view of what was taking place. And so this morning, we're from John 20. We're going to be looking at three different firsts. The first day, the first appearance, and the first family. Beginning in verse 1 to 10, a point that is consistently stated by all four Gospels is the day that Christ rose, resurrection day, is referred to as the first day of the week. Now, Jesus had prophesied that he would rise on the third day, but the gospel writers don't present this day that way. It's the first day of the week. They don't present this as the eighth day, as we're going to talk about this morning. Again, it is the first day of the week. So to be consistent with the prophetic reminders that Jesus had previously given to his disciples that he would rise on the third day, the gospel writers have chosen to present this as the first day of the week, the day following Sabbath. It's been pointed out that in John's gospel, and we've seen this in our study before, John takes us through the narrative Christ by showing us the Jewish festivals that were involved in the three and a half years of Christ's ministry. And these festival weeks would end not on the last day of the week, but on the eighth day, which would be the first day of the week. An example is given of this significance of the first day of the week and the last day of the feast from John chapter 7. So if you want to jump back to John chapter 7 for just a moment, This is where Jesus and his disciples have traveled down from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And there at the Feast of Booths are tabernacles in chapter 7. Look at verse 37 through 39. Because Jesus makes this public announcement. And it's on the last day of the festival or the first day of the week, the eighth day. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, that living water is a picture of new life in Christ. And those who are thirsty are those who have recognized they are sinners and in need of salvation. They're in need of rescuing. And then John gives to us some insight as to the meaning of these words in verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to be given or receive. For the Spirit was not given yet, because Jesus was not glorified yet. Now, the book of Acts tells us that the Holy Spirit descended upon the church on the day of Pentecost, which landed on the day after the Sabbath or the first day of the week, the day, again, that Jesus rose from the dead that all four gospel writers acknowledge. And the church quickly adopted Sunday, the first day of the week, because this is representative of Christ standing up and proclaiming aloud, I have living water to give. It's found in me. And the Spirit of God was given on that first day of the week because as faith comes, the Spirit indwells, that thirst in men's souls is satisfied by the living water of Christ. You can see in this the significance of Sunday. 
the first day of the week. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, the church was meeting regularly by this time on the first day of the week. And in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, this became known as what? The Lord's Day. This is the Lord's Day. Today is the Lord's Day. And next Sunday will be what? The Lord's Day again. It's when we meet. And it's the Lord's Day because this is the day that God ordained from eternity past. My son would rise again. I will fulfill my promise to quench the thirst of sinful souls with the life-giving waters of my son. And the Spirit would be dispatched on that first Lord's Day. The day of Pentecost, filling me, filling people with my presence, the presence of Christ. In John's account, Mary Magdalene takes center stage and he focuses on her alone on that first Resurrection Sunday. Though there are several other faithful women involved, John only focuses on Mary Magdalene. Now, there are four other ladies named in the Gospels, and Luke adds that there were a few few other ladies as well. So they're coming to the tomb on that first Lord's Day, the Resurrection Day. There was a fairly large company of gals that were coming to the tomb to minister to the body of Christ. They had come early in the morning while the darkness was just turning to sunrise, according to Mark chapter 16. And they came to anoint the body of Jesus with spices. Now, you're going to recall that at the end of chapter 19, Joseph and Nicodemus were hurriedly treating the body of Christ because the Sabbath was fast approaching and they needed to be done caring for the body of Christ before 6 o'clock on Friday, which would be the beginning of the Sabbath. So likely there was some more work that needed to be done. They wrapped Jesus in linen and spices And they moved Jesus to the the quickest tomb they could find, which happened to be a new tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. Now, apparently, a second anointing is needed. So the ladies had agreed to meet at the tomb on the day after the Sabbath to care for the body of Jesus. And the obvious point to be noted is that they came expecting to find a corpse. They came expecting to find a dead Jesus, not a risen Jesus, as the Lord himself had told them to expect. Yet, though their faith was unfounded yet, their love for the Lord was unmistakable. John does not mention the other gals that were at the tomb that morning. He chooses to highlight Mary Magdalene, who arrives at the tomb while it is still dark. In Luke chapter 8, We read that Mary Magdalene had been delivered by seven demons by the Lord. And she, along with several other women, were healed by Jesus, and they became financial supporters of the Lord's ministry. And they continued to support the ministry as well with their care and their attention, their devotion to the Lord and to the disciples. And that is evident here at the tomb of Christ. Arriving at the grave, Mary and the other ladies observed that the stone covering the entrance to the tomb had been rolled away and there was no body in the grave. She ran back to report to Peter and John that someone had taken the body of Jesus and they did not know where they had laid him. The other ladies remained at the tomb according to the other gospel. And they were visited by the angels who announced to those other ladies that Jesus had risen. And they were invited to come into the tomb, see where the body of Jesus once lay, and they were told, go quickly, tell his disciples. In the meantime, Mary Magdalene arrives at the place where Peter and John were staying. And on hearing the report from Mary that the body of Jesus is missing, they take off for the tomb. They run to the tomb. And by the time the other ladies have left, the two disciples arrive. John did not enter the tomb first, but we make note of one detail that John does include. He ran faster than Peter. That's an interesting detail, and you wonder if there's a little bit of a competitive spirit within the twelve. But that's only the detail only found here in John. The other gospel writers don't acknowledge John's speed. But John wants us to know, for all of eternity, I was faster than Peter. But John did not enter the tomb first. Peter arrives and he quickly moves into the tomb 
and he observes the linen wrappings and the face cloth that is rolled up or folded up and placed to the side. We are not told in any of the Gospels what those linen wrappings looked like apart from the rolled up face cloth. What they saw in the linen wrappings, though, ruled out a couple of possibilities. Number one, the body was not stolen. Because if it had been stolen, either the body and the clothing or the linen wrappings would have gone with the body, or the person stealing that body would have shredded those linen wrappings, taking the body. But that is not what was found here in the tomb. There was not the evidence of a body that was stolen. The tomb was organized And it was neat, according to the original language. John then enters after Peter, and he also sees, and it says, the moment he saw the linen wrappings, he believed. John then adds an interesting statement in verse 9. He adds, for as yet they, the disciples, Peter and John, did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, there are certain scholars that have read the words of John here, and they presume from this that John was not a faithful believer any more than Peter was, and that what he actually was believing was simply Mary's account that the body was stolen. It wasn't there. But that is not necessarily how this verse is to be understood. Peter, when he first arrives inside the tomb, John mentions how he examined the placement of the linen wrappings and the face cloth. And the word that is used for Peter seeing that is an interesting word. It is not the usual Greek word that means to see something. Rather, it's the word theoreo, which where, where we get the word theory or to theorize. That's not the common word for seeing. Peter was examining the clause with the idea that he's discerning something, he's perceiving, he's considering something. But when John enters the tomb, a different word is used for see. John also saw. But the word that John uses here for what he saw means to have understanding or discernment. What John is describing in verse 8 is how his disbelief had turned to belief based on what he saw in the tomb. And specifically, the story that those linen wrappings were telling both John and Peter. Peter's still processing. Something looks different here. But John sees, and he discerns the truth of the matter. Now, we recall how Jesus walked into the upper room later on that day when the disciples had gathered. Jesus had walked out of the tomb, and according to Matthew 28, it's an angel that rolled that stone away. It wasn't Christ. He was already gone. So we can possibly envision that when Jesus rose out of those linen wrappings, those wrappings stayed, as it were, wrapped to a body. Yet there wasn't anything in there any longer. Something about the placement of those wrappings gave evidence to Peter, there is something different here. This body was not stolen. But to John, it told a different story, didn't it? John believes And this indicates a couple of things. First, that which John believed and the scripture gives understanding to was that Jesus had risen from the dead. And we see that from the context of verse 9. The scripture foretold that Messiah must rise again. And this is what John saw beginning, or he was at least beginning to discern. The context here is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is no longer the context of what Mary had reported that the body is gone. Somebody's taken the body. That's not the context of John's belief. The context of his belief, John clearly states in verse 9. He had not yet, to this point, understood that Christ must rise again until he saw those wrappings. A second reality here from what John saw and believed is that the passages from the Old Testament scripture that prophesied of the resurrection were not understood until they witnessed the empty tomb and how those linens were arranged, and perhaps even more after they actually saw Jesus alive. Now, to what extent John believes here, we're not told. 
But the seeds of truth regarding the resurrection of Christ had begun to sprout within the heart of John. And it's then that the words of the Lord began to connect with the scriptures that foretold that Messiah must rise again. And he connected as well with the many times that Jesus had said, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried in the grave three days, but I will rise again. Soon they would see the Lord alive, making their faith even more sure. And on the day of Pentecost, all of this would become even more clear, and their faith would be informed to a much greater degree. It is my view that John, and perhaps to some degree Peter as well, they were beginning to believe that Jesus had risen just as he said. Perhaps this faith was still in its infancy. Perhaps they were still evaluating the possibilities. But a true faith, we do know, is nonetheless a growing faith. Gospel faith was advancing in John's heart. John and Peter then returned to their homes which would have been a temporary dwelling place while they were in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And no doubt they had much to talk about and discuss when they arrived. And it's of note also that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was now living with John. So it's quite possible, even likely, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was now aware that her son possibly had risen from the dead. That's what took place on the first day. This is what John wants his readers to know on that first resurrection morning took place. And this brings us to verse 11 and our attention being brought back to Mary Magdalene and the first appearance that Christ makes to any human being. John then returns to Mary Magdalene who is visiting the tomb. And it appears after she has reported to Peter and John that someone has taken the body and the two disciples run off to the garden tomb that Mary also made her way back to the garden tomb. Obviously, she didn't run quite as quickly. She'd already run from the tomb to the home of Peter and John, possibly a bit winded, but she's not going to move as fast as Peter and John. So she arrives back at the tomb after Peter and John have already left. That Mary Magdalene did not see or speak to Peter and John is evident from the text. Verse 11 picks up with Mary weeping, not for the possibility of joy that Christ might be alive, but she's weeping because she's still looking for a dead body that is not there. And as she wept, she stoops down to look inside the tomb, and she sees two angels. Now, these two angels had already visited the other ladies prior to this. The other ladies that went with Mary in the beginning are gone. John and Peter came. They left. Mary returns back to the tomb. And she pokes her head inside, and there are two angels. And John makes a note that there's one angel at the head of where Christ was laying on that slab and one at the feet, which again gives us a picture of those clothes neatly laid out in between them. The other Gospels tell us that the other women had also seen those angels, however, at a different time. And it appears that Mary Magdalene saw the angels a short time later, as she's pictured here by John, alone at the tomb. Verse 13 says the angels spoke to her, Mary Magdalene. It doesn't say the angels spoke to them as a group. So Mary is here alone at the tomb. And the angels ask Mary, why are you weeping? And I see this question not so much spoken in a, in a, a condemning way, like, you idiot, why don't you get it? but more of a compassionate curiosity, or maybe a passionate curiosity is a better way to put it. This angelic wonder comes up again in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, where Peter is writing on the wonder of the gospel itself. And the angels, in curiosity, look into this thing of the gospel. And the reality is the angels didn't fully discern because they haven't been saved. They didn't know what it means to be saved. They didn't know what it means to be thirsty and desiring of that eternal living waters. So they're looking into men and their lives and some reject, some accept that gospel. And it's a curiosity to them. And I picture here at the tomb as Mary looks into the grave that is empty 
And those angels ask Mary, why are you weeping? It gives to us a picture of the strong impulse in the angels to understand why the followers of Jesus did not fully believe the Son of God would rise again as he told them he would. Woman, why are you weeping? You can sense how puzzled they were. They just announced this to the women before. And here Mary is at the tomb, weeping, because she cannot find a corpse. Likely the angels are puzzled that all of their disciples had not gathered first thing Sunday morning and sat there waiting for Jesus to walk out. They had never known, these disciples, the women, they had never known Jesus to fail at any of his miracles. He had always told them the truth. They believed him to be the Son of God. Yet on this morning, resurrection morning, none of them came believing to the tomb. They're all looking for a corpse. So Mary answers the angel, again expressing her concern that someone has taken away the body of Christ And she doesn't know where they laid this corpse. To be sure in her words, there is a lack of faith to believe in the resurrection that Jesus had promised. At the same time, Mary's affection for Jesus was also clear. I don't know where they've taken my Lord. She has a deep passion for Christ. It's just her faith that was weak. And it's perhaps this deep affection in Mary for the Savior that allows Jesus to choose her to be the first to witness him alive. For some reason, as the angels question and Mary answers the angels, she turns around. No doubt she's heard some movement behind her. She turns and she sees Jesus, and she thinks he is the gardener taking care of the tomb area. And this tells us, I believe, or at least hints at the reality that Jesus has now a different And likely, I would suggest, his voice is different too. Because even as Jesus first speaks to Mary, she does not immediately recognize him. And because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, it gives to us a picture of what Paul was describing in 1 Corinthians 15. And we move now to the end of the chapter. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, there's a description of the glory of the resurrection of Christ. By the end of chapter 15, Paul begins to describe this is what it means for us on that day when our bodies will rise again. And I direct your attention to verse 42 to 44 in 1 Corinthians 15 because I believe this gives to us a hint at what Mary may have seen in the resurrected Christ. Paul writes, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Christ is now risen from the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There's something different about the body of every one of us that are believers on that great resurrection day. It's not going to be the same thing that is planted into the ground. It's not going to age. It's not going to grow old. The wrinkles, the disease, the pain, none of that will be present. It's raised up in glory, a spiritual body. So we know when Christ walked out of the grave Sunday morning, there was something different that Mary did not recognize in the outward appearance of Christ. And I suggest as well there's something different in his voice as well. The resurrected Jesus was not recognized by Mary, at least not immediately. Because Jesus asked the question that the angels had asked. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And again, Mary, thinking perhaps this is the groundskeeper, she wants to know where the body of Jesus has been taken. Sir, are you the one that has taken the body away? Let me know where it is, and I will come and take his body away. Now, one author has noted of Mary what is also true of the other followers of Christ. They had all watched Jesus Christ go on trial. They knew he was condemned to die, crucified on a cross. They saw him suffer, breathe his last, buried in a tomb. And therefore their faith and their hope in the Messiah had died with Christ. 
This was a terrible time of grief for the disciples and for those women that stayed close to the ministry of Christ and stayed close to him during the crucifixion ordeal. You can imagine how they felt as they watched Jesus die and placed into a tomb. They had hoped for a Messiah that would deliver Israel, but they had not yet understood that he came to deliver men from their sins. And when Jesus died and was buried, as this author suggests, their faith and their hope in Messiah had died as well. But the one thing that did not die was their love for the Lord. And in the Gospel of Luke, we're reminded of that story where Jesus went into the home of Simon the leper. And a woman of many sins came in. And with her tears and perfume and her hair, she was washing and anointing the feet of Jesus. And Jesus had forgiven her sins. And Simon, he was upset by this. He was concerned. And Jesus made this statement to Simon, the one who has been forgiven much will also love me much. The one who is forgiven much will love much. Mary Magdalene, remember, had been delivered from seven demons that tormented her and wherever that took her life. Jesus delivered her not only from that demonic presence, but from the attending sins those demons would have inflicted her with. She had been forgiven and healed a great deal by the Lord. So we know from this that because she had been forgiven much, she loved the Savior much, and her love continued even in his death. Mary was desperate and in tears to find the body of Jesus and to care for him this way, showing her love even in his death. Her faith, her hope, they may have failed, but not her love. So she appeals to this man, who she thought to be the gardener, tell me where you've taken him, and I will take him away. And Jesus simply responds, Mary. And at once, Mary turns back to the Lord, and she knows it is Jesus. Rabboni, teacher, rabbi. Here is a scene by which the good shepherd was gently calling one of his sheep to believe in his resurrection power. Imagine how that could have looked very differently if you were in that Savior's position. Mary, you foolish person. How many times did I tell you? You're looking for a corpse. I couldn't have made it any more clear. What is wrong with you thick-headed people? I know that's how I deal with it. This is a picture, is it not, of the good shepherd gently calling one of his own to faith, one of his flock, Consistent with what we read in John chapter 6, no one can come to the Father unless it's been granted to him. No one can come to the Son, I'm sorry, unless it's been granted by the Father. And here by the garden tomb of the Lord, Jesus reveals himself first to Mary. And God the Father is drawing her to faith in his Son. Mary hears that word, that name, Mary, and immediately she knows. How is it? that she recognized the voice of Jesus then and not just moments before. It's because God was revealing to this woman, this is the Savior. He's the one you're looking for. And it reminds me immediately of what Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The picture there at the garden tomb is of the gentle shepherd calling one of his flock to himself. It's not the appearance of Jesus that gave him away. It's not the voice of Jesus that gave him away. Not immediately. But it's the Spirit of God that began to open up her heart. The Father is saying to Mary, here's the one. And immediately your spiritual ears now hear the shepherd calling, Mary, I'm the one. It's not until Jesus determined to reveal himself to Mary by calling her name did she know this was the Lord. I'd like to bring up on the board just a statement by John Calvin here, who I think makes this wonderfully clear. He's looking at Mary as a beautiful picture of one of the flock being called by Christ. Thus in Mary, he writes, we have a lively image, in other words, a beautiful picture of our calling 
For the only way in which we are admitted to the true knowledge of Christ is by that voice with which he especially calls the sheep which the Father has given to him. What we're seeing here at the garden tomb is exactly what Jesus taught in John chapter 6 and John chapter 10. The good shepherd drawing one of his flock and they hear his voice and they come to him. Jesus chose to reveal himself first to Mary, and it is Mary that is first awakened to the truth of the living Savior. John may have begun to believe that Jesus may well have risen, but it's Mary that first sees Christ alive. It is Mary that embraces him by faith as the risen Savior. There is a certainty, there is a clarity in Mary's faith that is here expressed in her joy to see Jesus alive that even John had not yet experienced. For some reason, in God's providence, he gave that privilege to Mary Magdalene. She would be the first to see the risen Savior. Later in verse 20, John and the others will rejoice in the truth of the resurrection, but it's Mary Magdalene that is here rejoicing in the Savior right now. And this brings us to verse 17 and 18. Jesus shows that his resurrection has produced a new relationship with those who have come to trust in him by faith. When we think of the first family, we're thinking of the president and his family because in a certain way that office has a dignity and that family is to represent all American families in a way that we're under this kind of liberty and freedom that we call the United States of America. However, here Jesus introduces his people to a true first family that stands far above any earthly or human representation or any human or earthly family institution. Mary, when she recognizes that Jesus had risen from the dead, quickly came to him and apparently embraced him. And Jesus had to speak to Mary about what was clearly on her heart because he said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, there's some variations as the different authors perceive that or understand that declaration by Christ. And not all agree why Mary was not to hold on to Jesus. Because in just a few more verses, Jesus is going to challenge Thomas, I want you to grab hold of me. Look at the nail prints in my hands. Look at the, the wound in my side. Reach here and touch them, he told Thomas, and believe. Another concern that comes from this is in Matthew 28, when the other women left the tomb, having received from the angels the message that Christ was risen. Jesus, remember, met them along the way. And when they saw Jesus alive, they came and they held on to his feet. And it says they worshipped him. So I don't believe Christ's concern here is that Mary Magdalene was touching him but rather from his words that he had not yet returned to the Father, Jesus was cautioning Mary, I am not here to stay. And from Mary's position, she had lost the Lord. She was passionate about finding that body. And when she saw Jesus was alive, she held on to him as if to say, I don't want to let you go again. So Jesus has to say, you cannot cling to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. And then the relationship Jesus describes, tells us something has changed from what those followers of Christ have known from Jesus in the past three and a half years. The relationship between the Son of God and his his people would now change from him physically being with them to his spiritual being indwelling them. That was the Lord's previous promise in John 14. He said, I will not leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. But he's not coming to them, us, in the same way as he did prior to the cross. He's coming to them by sending his helper, the spirit of Jesus Christ, to indwell all those who believe and trust in Christ as their Savior. Mary was so emotionally distraught over losing the Lord, whom she deeply loved, that when she first recognized Jesus as risen, alive, and there in front of her, she takes hold of him, not wanting him to leave again. But she would come to understand that because of the death and the resurrection of the Savior, the Son of God would have now a much higher and more meaningful relationship with his people. 
Jesus must ascend to the Father and rule over his kingdom people while sending his own spirit to live within the heart of every true believer. Jesus then extends to Mary the vision of how the resurrection would transform the relationship between Messiah and his redeemed church. He continues in verse 17. Verse 17. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, and my God and your God. What the cross and the empty tomb has created is a spiritual and an eternal family that men have not known before. The ultimate Passover lamb has forever and completely addressed the sin problem that separated the people of God from the Lord God. Jesus now calls his people brethren. You go tell my brothers. He doesn't call them disciples, although he could. He doesn't call them apostles, although he has in the past. You go tell my brethren. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 because we see in a magnificent testimony of the word of God in regard to the believer's new relationship with Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 2, verse 11 and 12, we read these words. For both he who sanctifies, and this is talking about Jesus Christ, both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he, Jesus Messiah, is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus is the one who has sanctified us by the spilling of his blood, by surrendering a spirit over to death, by being buried in the grave and rising from the dead. He has sanctified his people, and therefore, because of his work of sanctification, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters in Christ. We are now spiritually related in family. And the result of that sanctifying work of the Savior has led him to say, these are my brethren, I'm not ashamed of them. Those who have come to faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ are now part of his family. And you'll notice Jesus does distinguish his relationship with God and ours. I want you to go to my brethren and let them know, I'm going to my God and your God, my father and your father. Jesus has been eternally with God the Father. We are now by faith joined to that family. Jesus comes by nature in his relationship to God. But we come into that family relationship by adoption. And Jesus on the cross is the one that wrote up those adoption papers. When Jesus walked out of the grave, his victory over sin and death established a new family relationship with those whom he has purchased with his own blood. And now it is right that we call Jesus our older brother. He is seated in heaven, providing care for his family. This is why Mary could not latch on to him. He was not here to stay. Our older brother has gone to heaven. He is seated on the throne, the right hand of God, and he's caring for his church, providing for our needs. His spirit is indwelling us, enabling to walk in fellowship with the heavenly father that is now ours. We can call God our father. He is our God through faith in Christ. And Mary Magdalene is the first to see Jesus alive. She's the first to hear the news of this family relationship the resurrection has now created in Christ Jesus. And verse 18 tells us that Mary came to the disciples and what does she announce? I have seen the Lord. I've seen him. And then she tells them all about this first family relationship that has been established with sinner and God through the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. Now, in all four Gospels, the resurrection is shown to be critical to the believer's understanding of the Gospel. Even as Paul writes, our faith is vain without it. But by the same token, do you realize that the resurrection would be meaningless without the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross? In other words, Jesus could have died, chosen to die, be placed in a grave, and raised up again by the power of God. But if he had not carried our sins on the cross, his resurrection would mean nothing to us. 
And in this way, the cross and the empty tomb, they are inseparable. It is because of what Jesus did on Calvary that the empty tomb has such meaning and transforming power for those who have trusted in Christ by faith. Those who believe will have a growing passion for Christ and his ways because he is risen. And I want to close just on three points that we might draw from John's account of the resurrection, the first resurrection morning. Number one, believers in the resurrection continue to celebrate the Lord's day. Believers in the resurrection continue to celebrate the Lord's day. As we look at the early church, there was an eagerness, especially you look at Acts chapter 2. There was an eagerness and a joy associated with the gathering of the saints on the day that the Lord had walked out of the grave. No longer did coming together seem like just a social gathering that they might have done in the synagogue. It wasn't a mere duty. Uh, and you had to maintain a social status to be part of the synagogue. Rather, in Acts chapter 2, with the resurrection of Christ still fresh in those believers' hearts, they were gathering in devotion to each other. They were feeling a sense of awe. They were sharing with each other. They were learning from God's word together and praising God for his many blessings. They were doing these things together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Why? It's because of the empty tomb, isn't it? They were gathering to worship together the Savior who had died, who rose again, had given new and eternal life to his people. They came together to stir each other up to love and good deeds, as it says in Hebrews. Knowing this is what the Lord desires of his people. They were anxious for the gathering of the church. And our gathering each week on the Lord's day should not be seen as a duty either or something to endure or something that it's keeping us from a more fun activity on Sunday. The empty tomb should be a reminder to us for why we are here and what we are to be doing and the joy that we should be experiencing as we do gather. If this is the Lord's day, then his people, purchased by his blood, should see him in worship that he is worthy of. He's worthy of our worship, our adoration, our praise, the worship that he's asked for. Why are we here this morning? Because it delights our Savior that we do what he's told us to do and gather in joy and celebration of new life. And we're going to keep doing this until we're gathered into his presence, aren't we? Every Lord's Day, we're going to be here. It should be our joy, our passion, our eagerness to be part of this because this is the Lord's day, the day he walked out of the tomb. Second, believers in the resurrection will embrace and worship the risen Savior. And I'm thinking of Mary here. They will embrace and worship the risen Savior. This is what the ladies had done as they left the tomb and Jesus met them along the way, Matthew 28. They latched onto his feet, and it said they worshipped him. We can see in the love that Mary Magdalene had for the Savior, she took hold of him. The Lord had to correct her heart to be sure. But she was overjoyed to see the living Savior. To believe is to take hold of the Savior. It's to worship him for who he is and what he's done. And like Mary and the other ladies and the disciples, we should do the same out of love for Christ. Our love, our devotion will be marked by our faithful service to Christ, our faithful service to the body of Christ, our obedience to his word, our care for one another. To worship the risen Savior is to adore him. It's to grow in his likeness because we adore him. It's to live in gratitude to him for all of his graces and kindnesses. Do we truly come to take hold of the Savior and worship him? And third, believers in the resurrection will know the higher bond of God's family. They will know the higher bond of God's family. I think as Christians, most of us value our individual families as well we should. And in truth, marriage and family, those are the creations of God himself. So we should value those things. But neither our eternal And neither will experience the glory of heaven. The families that we have here on this earth, 
They are not eternal, and they're not going to experience the glory of heaven, as will the family relationship that Christ has made for us in him. That God is our father, Christ is our brother, and you and I are now related to each other by the blood of Christ. That will be eternal. That will see, that relationship will see the glory of heaven. And as we said many times, this should never find us neglecting our earthly families. But is it true there are times that we neglect the family of God? Have we been guilty of treating God's family with less concern than we would treat our own families? God's son poured out his blood, was buried in the grave, rose again, that we might be adopted into his eternal family. Do we view this family as heaven's first family? Do we place the same value on Christ's family that he does? It is the resurrection of God's son that has made God to be our father, Jesus our heavenly brother, and each of us as adopted children of God, bound to each other in the dignity and the value of the cross and the empty tomb. How do we cherish the family of God? Hopefully it's a growing passion that we have where we love to be together. We love to sing the praises of God together. We love to come and honor the first day, the Lord's day, by gathering in his name, singing his praises, showing each other love, serving Christ and one another. How do we, family, how do we value the family of God? God in heaven, We do want to give you the praise and the glory that you deserve for being a God of redeeming love. We want to give praise to your Son, who is alive and seated at your right hand, to express our love to you, Jesus, for being our Savior, willing to die for his people, and as a loving shepherd, drawing us by faith to you into your salvation and into your embrace and into your family. And we give praise and worship to the Spirit of Jesus Christ this morning as well, who has seen fit to breathe new life into us, granting us the precious gift of faith that we might be saved and come under the redeeming blood of Christ. Father, as your church, we have so much to rejoice in this morning, so much to praise you for. Let the gratitude of our hearts be evident to you this day as we worship you together, as we love you and adore you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.